Back in 2014, platform as a service was becoming an increasingly popular idea. The idea of platform as a service was to sit on top of infrastructure as a service providers like Azure, AWS, or Google Cloud. And that would simplify some of the complexity of these infrastructure providers. Heroku had built a successful business from the idea of platform as a service, and there was a widely held desire in the developer community to have an open source Heroku. Deus was one of the first projects to use Kubernetes as a tool to build a platform as a service, and the team that was working on Deus got very early exposure to the process of building a platform as a service on top of Kubernetes. Michelle Neurally was one of the engineers on the Deus team. When Deus got acquired by Microsoft, Michelle was working on Helm, a package manager for distributed systems that works with Kubernetes. Helm allows developers to deploy distributed applications on top of Kubernetes more easily. A few examples of distributed applications that can be deployed using Helm are Kafka, Prometheus, and IPFS. One reason that Helm is so useful is that distributed systems are notoriously hard to configure and run, and Helm simplifies that. Since joining Microsoft, Michelle has continued to work on Helm, She's also a member of the Kubernetes Steering Committee and the board of the CNCF. Michelle joins the show to talk about her early experiences building Platform as a Service and her perspective on the Kubernetes ecosystem. It was a great discussion of the contemporary subjects of the Kubernetes world. Full disclosure, Microsoft, where Michelle works, is a sponsor of Software Engineering Daily. Michelle Neurley, you are a software engineer at Microsoft. Welcome to Software Engineering Daily. Hi, thank you so much for having me. So today we're going to be talking about containers and Kubernetes and some contemporary subjects, but I want to get some historical context because before you were working on containers and Kubernetes, you were working at Engine Yard, and this was a platform as a service back in 2014, and I'm sure this stuff feels so dated, but I can remember back in 2014, the early days of platform as a service. What was that like back in 2014 when you were building a platform as a service? That was an exciting time. I actually moved to San Francisco from Georgia to take this opportunity. I wanted to focus on back in engineering versus full stack development. And I was so excited um, to be there because we were doing all these really cool, neat things uh, with AWS, with the cloud and helping people deploy and manage their applications on AWS without having to deal with the behemoth that is uh, AWS or really any other cloud provider. Yeah, we were, platform as a service had become, you know, really popular kind of like 2011 around that time. And it was really great, especially for startups that didn't have their own DevOps teams. So you'd see companies like Groupon and Hotel Tonight and other big names take advantage of a PaaS to deploy and manage their applications um, as they were scaling without having to figure out everything in the cloud. And we were so excited to kind of be a part of that journey with with a bunch of startups. It was fun. It was a good time helping solve people people's problems. What were the fundamental lessons you learned about building platform as a service or just building infrastructure technology for developers? Yeah, I think... The cloud is really still hard to figure out because you just kind of 
go in and you have so many things to choose from. And at the end of the day, a developer is just trying to deploy and run their application. They're trying to figure out what happened when stuff goes wrong. Um, but really, you know, like just get their their business logic out there so that at the end of the day, the business can, can keep going and growing and make money. And so figuring out like what exactly the workflow is and what things from all of the options a developer needs is still is still really hard. And that's something I, I learned while I was at Engineard and, and still continue to realize today. Yeah, it's funny because I think developers still have those problems, the same problems of deploying your app, of like figuring out what database to use. It, it almost feels like we're still frozen in time to some extent. Yeah, no, I but I have hope. I have hope we're getting we're getting better because we're kind of rebuilding everything a little bit from the ground up. You know, a cloud became really really popular. It became really a lot more possible to do things like prototypes and get it out there and and scale startups and stuff. So and a bunch of other things as well. But now we, we realize through all the hardships of building these pauses, also that something like Kubernetes. And having that generic abstraction layer to really deploy your containerized applications, it, it has a lot of value. And I think that that's something that especially people have worked who have worked on infrastructure tooling and, and in that PaaS space really, really understand intimately. Well, there was a lot of churn in figuring out what the abstraction layer that people would centralize around would be. I think that was in this kind of 2011 to 2017 time frame where there were things like OpenStack and Deus, which uh, Engine Yard, where you worked, eventually eventually acquired Deus. Deus was this company that I think it started, well, the project was an open source project and it was also a company built around that open source project. And it was a framework for doing it was like open source i think the tagline was open source heroku initially and then yeah. over time it adopted kubernetes and started using kubernetes as some of the underpinnings of deus can you tell me about deus and uh, where did deus come along in the evolution of these different uh, platform as a service open source abstractions yeah uh so I'll just, uh, I'll tell this story because I think it's funny. I came to San Francisco, bright-eyed and eager, and joined Engineard. And at Engineard, you know, I, I was actually kind of there when they plateaued a bit. Engineer was really popular, really, really um, great for deploying these Ruby and PHP and uh, Node.js apps. And that has gotten a little bit easier over time. And so I was kind of there during a plateau period. And Two weeks after I joined, we got this mysterious meeting invite and we went upstairs into this meeting room and uh, this guy walked out. His name is Bo Rollick and he was like, hello, I am your new CEO. And nobody really knew about that. It was like a surprise to most of us. That was really interesting because, you know, him coming in presented a lot of opportunities for new change in the company. and. What Engineard realized was that containers, which were so popular at the time, they were all the Docker was all the rage. Everybody wanted to use Docker. They just didn't know exactly uh, how, but they were so desperate to. We were all really so desperate to uh, solve the "it works on my machine" problem, and so we we knew that containers were going to change the game. 
And here, you know, came along Deus and Deus had a platform as a service um, open source project uh, that was built entirely with containers. And so there was this, uh, there's the tagline was, yeah, Heroku for your on your own machines, because you could do the Git push style workflow that Heroku had and push, uh, deploy and manage your um, containerized applications. And under the hood, they were using Fleet and NetCD to do kind of the things that uh, we now use Kubernetes for, which is like scheduling your containers and managing state and things like that. So Deus was really on the ball, really an early, earlier player. And that's because one of the co-founders also and the CTO, his name was Gabe Roy, CTO of Engineered after they were acquired, he was also an early contributor Docker and kind of had already gotten on board. And so we thought that that would be a really great addition to Engineard. And I remember him doing his first presentation to the engineering team. And I was like, wow, this is so cool. This is totally going to change the game um, when it comes to paths and deploying your application. So that happened. When you look back, was there anything specific about Deus's architecture that why wasn't Deus the the Kubernetes the the platform as a service to rule them all. Although I guess Kubernetes is is a little bit lower level. Yeah, tell me about those the differences in abstraction layer between Deus at that point and what Kubernetes became. Yeah, I think Deus was a lot more high level, like you mentioned. Like uh, Kubernetes is a, a lower level thing, and so actually after Deus was acquired, we were we were comparing Kubernetes and Mesos because. Deus at the time was really great for what it did, but you know, under a lot of scale, it kind of broke every now and then. So we were looking to replatform on something that was uh, really strong, had strong uh, a foundation. And Kubernetes and Mesos, we need some container orchestration system, basically. And so container, uh, and so when you think about container orchestrators at the time, Mesos and Mesos is actually a bigger name at the time than Kubernetes was, and Kubernetes was a lot, lot more nascent kind of looked at that and said, okay, this is this can be a core component of um, this uh, Deus-like workflow uh, that we're trying to build, which was the Git push style workflow on your own machines. But now it'd be, you know, with Kubernetes under the hood as well. And so Engineard acquired Deus. Deus eventually decided to use Kubernetes under the hood instead of Mesos. And then after that acquisition, you were just working on retooling Deus? Or what was your role? Help me um, frame this in, in time. What, what was your role like after that acquisition? Yeah, basically that acquisition happened. And a few weeks later, we were told that we were going to pivot. But this was like a real pivot. You know, people kind of joke about startups pivoting all the time. Like this was this was a hard pivot. We were all told, like, just stop what we were doing. We were all, like, most of us were Rails developers at the time, and they told us to learn Go. And they were like, just make yourselves expert in Docker. <laughs> learn whatever Kubernetes is. And at the time, we, nobody really knew what Kubernetes was. We barely knew what a pod was. And so they were just like, okay, and just go. And um, you're going to help uh, build Deus Workflow, which was like the Deus V2 container paths on Kubernetes. And so... Our role was just to figure it out. And in that process, we realized there were some other gaps that could help make our lives easier as people who were building basically what was an application, um, a complex application to be deployed on Kubernetes. I mean, Deus workflow in reality, you know, a PaaS is just an application, but 
like we were building this like complex application with multiple components that needed to be deployed on Kubernetes so that at the end of the day, you could have that simple workflow to deploy your app. Um, so we were early Kubernetes developers. And that's kind of where Helm came about. They were, we were just trying to solve problems that we were facing as early users of the, of the tool. Now, around that time, the market for platform as a service was mostly startups. It was startups and hackers who wanted to deploy their app quickly, to move quickly. Today, I think everybody wants some form of platform as a service or some of the features of a platform as a service. And so, you know, you have Kubernetes underpinning a lot of these platform as a service that are being offered to large enterprises, the large, the, the oil companies and the uh, CPG companies and the insurance companies that all want to, to migrate to Kubernetes. So as that customer base has changed, what has changed in the tooling of what people want out of a platform as a service? That's a really good question, by the way. I think one of the things that I've been seeing is that people want some opinions, but they also really want flexibility to go around those opinions. I talk to companies who are just like, we want an easy solution for our developers, large companies. We want an easy solution for our developers, but we also want our developers to be able to, you know, modify Kubernetes components if they need pretty easily and uh, just kind of go around whatever whatever workflow we've laid out. Now, Deus had built some tools that allowed people to onboard and use Kubernetes more quickly and efficiently. But were you using these tools mostly internally to just manage containers for these hackers and the startups that were standing up uh, platform as a service applications back in the day? Or were you thinking of these more as tools that would allow people to set up their entire Kubernetes cluster and to interface directly with Kubernetes? Like, did the customers back in 2014, do they want to interact? Or I guess this was about 2015, 2016. Yeah. Did they want to actually interact with Kubernetes or did they just want the abstraction of deploying an application? I think people didn't really know what they wanted at the time. I think it's just like the problems that they were trying to, they were facing at the time, like, you know, they wanted consistent environments. Um, so containers were were really important for that. They wanted um, to be able to deploy those containers on their machines. So you need a container orchestrator. I think people didn't really know exactly what they wanted. And I don't think that there was an option either. Like you couldn't not touch these underlying um, pieces uh, because there was no solution for being hands-off. We actually tried to build one early on, like right when we acquired Deus, we tried to build um, kind of one of those hands-off solutions where you could just deploy something. It was Deus on our platform, um, not not on Kubernetes. And it was like, here, just one click, deploy your container. And that really didn't take off at the time because I don't think that people really, I think it was really early, first of all, and people didn't really know what they needed or what they wanted and how to wire things up. So, so yeah, I don't, I don't know. And I don't really know if we know exactly what we want now. Either. Yeah. Some people who don't really want to touch Kubernetes or some people who think that it's really important to understand all of the components. I personally hope to see a day where you don't really need to know anything about Kubernetes, but you understand there's something under the hood that's scheduling your containers and figuring it out all for you. Well, the palette of options is certainly developing quickly. Now you have 
manage your own Kubernetes cluster. You could use a, a managed service provider. You could use like Azure Container Service or Azure Kubernetes Service. You could use the standalone containers like the Azure Container Instances or Fargate from, from Amazon, or you can use serverless functions, which are containers under the hood. Have you seen any patterns or consolidation around this, or are people just totally experimenting with all the things? I think that like it's so interesting because a lot of the stuff that's coming out, um, all of the newer stuff that's coming out is like not uncommon problems. I think we're just taking problems and trying to build uh, generic solutions around them. And so the managed Kubernetes services make a lot of sense, right? Because you don't want to, it's really hard to manage um, all your manage like upgrade Kubernetes versions, like get it, get it up and running. And you have to have a whole team to, to do that. And there's a lot of intricacies. So if somebody can manage that for you, you should let them do that. <laughs> uh, at least I do. I don't want to stand up my own Kubernetes clusters. I used to do that. We had this kube up script uh, back in the day. I don't even know if it's still around, but you'd have to like run that. And then a lot of the times it would break at no one's fault. You know, this is all really early stuff. It would break and then you'd have to like spend like three days figuring out what was happening. So, so yeah, I don't want anybody to feel that pain anymore. And I think we're still developing. Like there's still a lot that we're trying to figure out. I think what's really important to keep in mind is that, or what I really actually love seeing about this space is that everyone is just now learning the questions that they actually need to ask to be able to, in the end, run reliable, like large scale applications uh, in the cloud or on bare metal or in hybrid environments. And so we are going to see a lot more patterns come as we go forward. Can you say more about that? What is being learned right now? Just the, okay, like, for example, service meshes are really, really new, but we didn't really so uh, the whole the, one of the main goals of the service mesh is to ensure reliable communication between your services. So we didn't really know that that was a that was a thing that you needed, right? We didn't know that there was a an entire abstraction layer that you could have for that until people like uh, from Lyft and Twitter kind of came out and said, "Hey, this is a thing that we're doing." And then everybody was like, "Oh yeah, like that makes a lot of sense. We should, should <laughs> kind of gather around that. We should figure out that solution." So, so that's an, one example of an abstraction that has kind of come out. The uh, serverless containers, the ACI, Fargate. Stuff that makes a lot of sense. It's like, okay, I just want one container. I don't need all of it. I don't need everything. I don't need a whole entire cluster. I just want one container. I just really want to spin up really quickly to do this one specifically highly specific, highly focused task. How do I do that? And so that's an option for that. We didn't know that was a thing that we needed until you know later on. So so yeah, we're still learning. And I think another element that you might be intimately familiar with is the notion of distributed systems package management. I mean, many of the applications that you want to deploy to a Kubernetes cluster are a distributed system. Kafka, you know, it's several different nodes. How can you easily deploy a Kafka cluster? How can you easily just deploy a replicated MySQL cluster? Well, you could use a package manager like Helm, and that's one thing that you're that you're working on. Would you classify Helm as one of these things where it's like once you identified the 
the issue of distributed systems package management and distribution. It was another one of these, oh, we need to build a lot of tooling around this. Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah, definitely. You know, we ran into this problem. We were like, hey, I have this application. It has a lot of components that work together. And I really need to deploy this. And I need to save, like, I need a way to, you know, share this thing once I've figured out how to deploy it with my team. And then I may want to deploy it in different environments. I may want to uh, deploy it on my own machine or on or on a cloud provider. How do I configure it slightly just to you know do one or the other? So that's kind of the the questions that were asked when when Helm was first being built, and it was the problem that Helm was built to solve. And so yeah, I think that deploying like the we came up with the package format of a chart. I don't know if you're familiar. And it basically holds your Kubernetes manifests, um, which is how you define what things you want to run in Kubernetes. And so basically, it's like, I want to run this container, and here's all the configuration around it. And then you can template those res- uh, those uh, manifest files, um, those instructions to work slightly differently in different environments if you want to do that. And you can package it up and you can share it with your team. That's kind of the main, like the essence of what Helm is. That was developed when you were at Deus, right? Yeah, that's correct. It came out of a hackathon, actually, when we were first starting to work on Deus Workflow. What was the impetus for building it? Was was there some set of problems that you were encountering on a regular basis that led to the development of Helm? Yeah, it was how do I consistently deploy something on Kubernetes? And how do I, once I figured out how to deploy this thing on Kubernetes, how do I share what I have? with other people. And and we were finding that with Deus Workflow, which was a set of components that we were running on Kubernetes. So we were like, okay, I made some changes to this one component and I, you know, now figured out how to run this the right way in Kubernetes. I'm gonna package it up and I'm gonna pass it over to you and then you can figure out your part and add to that. Um, and we can version that package so we know, you know, that this set of configuration works in one way, and then the next version will do something else. So yeah. Yeah, and I guess this had never been built before because in the past, the I guess the closest equivalent would be if you go into one of these cloud marketplaces and you you know you can they the cloud marketplaces do have some templates for installing distributed systems, mm-hmm. but they're cloud specific, whereas this is Kubernetes specific, so you could deploy it on any Kubernetes cluster regardless of where it's running. Exactly. Yeah. And we modeled this uh, a lot after Homebrew and Debian, NAT, Yum, those types of uh, tools that allow you to install something really simply on your operating system. So we were like, well, instead of having one machine, maybe we can think of your Kubernetes cluster as like a distributed operating system and figure out how we can install applications uh, simply on on that as well. So it's very heavily modeled after existing package managers. Yeah, and then some of the differences I can imagine if you're developing a distributed application uh, installation system versus a uh, one that's just for a single node are you've got, I guess, dependency management becomes a, a little bit more difficult. You've got the potential for nodes to fail at any given time. Tell me more about the differences between developing a distributed systems package manager versus a single node system. 
Yeah, I think Kubernetes actually takes care of a lot of the complexity under the hood for us. So um, nodes failing, you know, things going wrong, uh, you know, you basically define what you want in Kubernetes, you define Maybe you have a Kubernetes resource, like a pod or a daemon set or something. And, and that's basically a, an encapsulation of the application and how it runs in Kubernetes. And you, you say, Kubernetes, make this happen. You know, you're just like giving it to the system and it is responsible for making it happen. And so, you know, creating Helm, we really got to take a lot of that for granted and what we focused on was mainly how do I describe the set of things that I want to install in my Kubernetes cluster? And how do I version that? How do I package that? How do I template it so that I can configure it to run in AWS, but also in Google and also in Azure and also on bare metal? You know, like how do I do those kinds of things? So I think the the main idea here is how do I, you know, how do I give you all of the goodness of Kubernetes, but also let you isolate things that make your application run differently in different environments? And how can we package that easily? Is that a big use case for Helm, the ability to specify different configurations for uh, different cloud providers? Like if you want to have a multi-cloud Kubernetes cluster, or you want to have a Kubernetes cluster that's that could be multi-cloud in the case of failover or burst capacity or something? Yeah, that's definitely not an uncommon use case. I think what's even more common though is, and, and more easily relatable, I think is, how do I deploy this in my staging environment? How do I deploy this in my production environment? How do I deploy this in a testing or development environment? So maybe like that's more more relatable and more common. So Helm has these three core concepts, and we talked a little bit about this stuff in the episode with Ralph Squalachi, but I would like to revisit it with you because you're very involved in it. So there's the chart, which is like a recipe that describes the metadata and the resource definitions. You've got the values, which are user-supplied configuration. You have a release, which is a chart together with the values you supply. Can you say a bit more about the core concepts of Helm? Yeah, and you did a great job summarizing. So I'll just add to that. Uh, yeah, so the when you go to deploy a thing on Kubernetes, Kubernetes is just a system uh, that manages your containers on your actual machines. So it's going to schedule containers for you and make sure they're running. Kubernetes has its own concepts or its own abstractions. For example, one of those concepts is a Kubernetes pod. A Kubernetes pod would be an example of a resource in Kubernetes or a Kubernetes resource. And the thing the pod does is that it holds your application container. Sometimes a pod will hold more than one container, like maybe you'll have another container that deals with like logging and monitoring, for example. But let's just focus on the pod holding one container, which contains your application. So you might have have a an application that you want to deploy. So you'll define a pod in Kubernetes. So we call we write Kubernetes manifests for those, um, which is like a YAML file or something else. And and then what happens is that to deploy an application, especially a complex application, you may not just have to define one pod. You may also have to define other types of uh, Kubernetes resources. Like a daemon set is a type of Kubernetes resource that ensures that 
your application container is running is there there's like one instance of your application runs running on every single node or every single machine. And so there might be there's another concept called the Kubernetes service and that's like a load balancer so it manages the traffic to your application. And so when you go and actually write up a and like a definition for your application and how it should run in Kubernetes, it ends up being multiple different Kubernetes resources or Kubernetes components. Um, you have to define multiple of these abstractions. So a chart has a few different areas to focus on, but the biggest piece of a chart, um, which is just a directory of files, uh, is the templates directory. And that ha- contains all of the manifests that you need to run your application in Kubernetes. And then outside of that, you also have like, you know, chart.yaml file, which describes the package that you're trying to deploy. So the set of set of components in Kubernetes. And then you also have a values file. So you touched on that, which is the user supplied configuration. So say, um, so you can actually template your manifests with Helm. Um, we use Go templating and you can param try some aspects of your manifest. So, or any aspect really of your manifest. So For example, a very common one is um, you would template your image name and or image tag. And in the values file in the chart, you would supply defaults for all those parameters that you have uh, defined in your templates. But when you actually go and deploy your chart, if you want to override that values file, you can uh, supply a different um, file with a different configuration. So say you have something different for a staging environment, you might want to pass in some some other values file uh, when you go and install your chart. So that's chart and uh, metadata, and then and, and the values file. And the release is actually the thing that you get when you install an instance of your um, chart in your Kubernetes cluster. So if you do a Helm install a chart, you'll get some randomly generated uh, name for a release. So it'll be something like cute puppy. Um, you can override that, obviously, but we like to have fun. So, And I especially really like the randomly generated names. So you'll just get some, some randomly generated name for a release. And you'll refer to that installation as a release in Kubernetes. And that release contains all of the information for the Kubernetes resources you just installed. So it'll say you have these pods, this Kubernetes service, this config map, this whatever, whatever other things. And when you go and upgrade, you can go ahead and upgrade that release or roll back or delete that release. And what it, what those things do is it applies actions to all of the resources that were defined in your release. If you do a Helm install the same chart, then you'll get a different instance of that app, uh, of that chart, and you'll have a different release and a different release name. Does that make things a little more clear? It does. Yes. So in practice, yeah, as I understand, people use Helm to install things across their Kubernetes cluster. So things like Prometheus or InfluxDB or a service mesh, for example. What else do people use in their day-to-day operations for Helm? Or what aspects of Helm do they use in their day-to-day operations? I think you hit on the big one, right? So they um, they use it mainly to install and manage those sets of Kubernetes components that are related, um, which make up your application. Um, they may also use it to 
like find charts. So you can, there's like a search command. So you can search for what charts are out there. You can also, you can do more chart management type of actions, like create, use it to create a a chart repository or some aspects of a chart repository. Um, A chart repository is a thing that it's any, any can be any web server that holds charts, um, but it has at the root of it an index file. And so you can use Helm, the Helm CLI to generate that index file, for example. And you can also use Helm to scaffold a new chart. Um, so the Helm create command, you just say uh, Helm create, pass in some name, we'll say my chart, and they'll generate this like basic uh, chart for you. And then you can use that to like, you can like throw in your templates or your Kubernetes manifest and kind of get going from there. When I spoke with Ralph, we talked about not just Helm, but also Draft and Brigade. Are you also involved in those projects? Yeah, I am. Um, Draft was a big, big part of my day to day for a long time, uh, and I still, still spend some time there. We've been working on a new version of Helm, so I've been focusing on on Helm too these days. But yeah, Draft is as uh, one of the one of the very interesting, pro- more interesting projects I have worked on. So it is a tool that helps you create and inter- iterate on cloud native applications or applications that are going to be deployed to Kubernetes. But it does all of kind of like the things that you need to deploy your application kind of under the hood for you, which is really nice. So the backstory here is everybody I worked with had basically the same set of make files. Uh, that we would use to do all of the things to go from source code to thing running in Kubernetes. And um, that included, you know, you had to, after you wrote your source code for an application, you would uh, containerize that. We, you, you know, you'd write a Docker file, you'd use Docker build to build that application or build that container, excuse me. You'd deploy it to a container registry of your choosing. Uh, you'd then create a Helm chart. And then you'd reference that image in the Helm chart, and then you'd deploy the Helm chart to your Kubernetes cluster. And it was just like a set of steps that you kept repeating. And so what Draft did is basically automate that workflow um, for us. And I really like using it, actually. And so you have, if you're in a source code repository, you can do um, Draft Create. And it will detect the type of application you're in. Sometimes this doesn't work all the way. So you can like, there's a way to manually override this, but you can run draft create, which will um, detect what what type of application you're in. It will give you a Docker file, a base Docker file to work with. It will give you a base Helm chart to work with. And then you can do a draft up, which will build and push that image to a container registry. And then it will reference it in the Helm chart and deploy that Helm chart for you into your Kubernetes cluster, which is pretty cool. And then you can do things like, um, I think it's a draft connect. And that is a tool that allows you to basically, you get back a local host URL um, that you can use to then play with your app that's running in, say, a remote Kubernetes cluster. And so like in that fashion, you can iterate on your app too. Very useful. So the Helm 2, the updates to Helm that you're working on, what are the improvements that you're focused on? What's What are you building? Yeah, so I think the biggest thing to 
takeaway from Helm 2 is um, we are removing the server-side component. So Helm has two pieces. Helm is the CLI. And then Tiller is the thing that you that we install in your Kubernetes cluster, which then creates the releases, talks to the Kubernetes API um, to build, uh, you know, create those objects that you pass in, and then manages your release in your cluster. So a lot of that can be done uh, client side, and so we're re-architecting Helm to be a uh, single cl- uh, client side tool. Um, that that does all of the things that Helm does for you. So that's one big thing. And then lately, I've been uh, re-architecting the Helm test command. So Helm test is a command that you can use to run tests for your chart. So in your chart, you can define some some tests that will ensure that your chart is working the way that you want it to work. And so this was something that was um, that I worked really, really hard on, like during Helm two, trying to make it a feature, but not not backwards incompatible. And so it feels a little bit raw still. Um, and so Helm three, because that's a that's a breaking change. It's like a major version relief release. We can make big breaking changes. And so I'm kind of like redesigning what the user work, user experience would be for like uh, Helm test, and then how we would architect it internally as well. Is there anything particularly difficult about that refactoring of Helm, particularly the removing the server side component sounds difficult? Yeah, it is a huge um, chunk of work. Uh, One of the people on our team, Adam Reese, has been working on that. And it's something that, you know, we have like, we have that development branch, like kind of up for people to see if they if they want, but we're actually not accepting contributions to Helm 3 at the moment, because all the stuff that um, goes into refactoring for the removing the server side pieces is really complex. And Adam's doing an amazing job. Sometimes we jump in and try to pair with him, but he's been really leading that effort. I want to take a step back because you are involved in the Kubernetes steering committee. You're also on the board of the CNCF. Tell me what the state of Kubernetes is from from that high level when you're looking at it from the perspective of seeing adoption and different governance conversations. Tell me how you you feel that Kubernetes has changed in the last year. I would say it's gotten a lot more mature. We are really focusing on putting you know the community first and trying to trying to be more transparent in in the way we do things and um, really trying to basically figure out what has been going on thus far and how we can make sure that the the project and the community grows in like a healthy and sustainable fashion. So I was elected to the Kubernetes steering committee last year and it's about like 13 people and we've been focusing on a few different things. So so how do we even just like manage the the GitHub org, like the Kubernetes GitHub org? Because uh, there's, there's just so many people involved and there's a lot of automation in place. And so we're trying to figure out what makes sense to do from a GitHub management perspective. And so a lot of this is like very tedious tasks. Like how do we uh, figure out what we're doing already and then make that a process and then actually go and implement it? So that's that's one piece, GitHub management. And the second piece is we have uh, special interest groups. Um, who basically take an area of the code base and kind of just like 
run with it. And they, they're just, they specialize in particular areas. So um, SIG apps is the one that I was really involved in. And that deals with the apps API and the ecosystem tools. Um, there's like a lot of other ones as well. SIG cluster lifecycle, SIG node, service catalog, just like uh, just, I could keep going. There's some for the cloud providers, etc. So each has its own area that they focus on. But up until now, there has not been a really a consistent way for um, managing those uh, special interest groups or even, you know, having transparency into how it functions, how decisions are made, you know, how they take accountability, etc. And so we've been working on kind of uh, qualifying that in what we call SIG charters. And so that's a, that's also a huge process that's going on right now. And then the third big area that I've been focusing on actually is um, the Code of Conduct Committee. Uh, we have a Code of Conduct and historically Code of Conducts have been like unenforceable. And so this committee is responsible for maintaining and modifying, iterating on the code of conduct that we have, but also enforcing that code of conduct in the community and kind of making decisions and executing on those decisions, etc. And I'm just so excited about that committee because it's, it's consists of people who just like have this awesome background as five members, all of them have backgrounds in dealing with code of conduct issues in various different communities. And they're bringing their expertise in. They're doing research with other groups like the Mozilla Diversity and Inclusion Team. And they've they've been doing research with other people as well just on how to create this healthy environment, how to um, resolve issues in the in the community. So we've been doing, those are the three big areas. We've been doing other things like figuring out our values and other things like that as well. What are the discussions that have come up in the code of conduct area What that have been you know, difficult to figure out or, or contentious? I think it's, it's not so much the, that the code of conduct is convent, uh, contentious. It's more of like, it's kind of light. And I think it will be helpful for us to define kind of like what the scope of the code of conduct is, where it's enforceable, where it's not, how, like, what are the norms of how our uh, community functions? Because a lot of the times, what happens is like you have t- people from different backgrounds, different areas of interest and experiences, and not everybody like knows exactly what like the norm is and how to work together. And so if we just like define that and uh, in a document, then everybody kind of has like a single source of truth. And I think that'll be really helpful. I'm really looking forward to that as as well. Definitely. And so the Kubernetes steering committee that you're a part of, what is that role consist of that? Is that like just figuring out the direction of the project? Yeah. So it's basically making sure that our, the Kubernetes project is, is healthy and growing. And, you know, if there are any issues that we're there to solve it, but a lot of the times really what we end up doing is figuring out, like, we don't want to make decisions. We want to give people like, uh, empower people to make decisions. And so then the question becomes like, who are you empowering? Like who should make what decision? And then that's kind of what we're uh, trying to codify now with the SIG charters and like putting some processes in place because a lot of the times it wasn't necessarily so clear, you know, what direction the community should go in. So when there is like a big decision that needs to be made, 
process wise or otherwise, uh, you can go to the steering committee. It's like there wasn't there wasn't that before. Before it was like maybe one or two people who were everybody was kind of bombarding to like you know get the answers to their questions or to kind of make a decision, and that doesn't scale with a project that is the size of Kubernetes and and growing at the velocity that Kubernetes is. And so the steering committee is kind of there to help make decisions or help guide people to other people who should make decisions. Yeah, yeah, that makes a lot of sense. One thing I wanted to get your perspective on was the business side of Kubernetes and the developments for the cloud providers, the opportunities for smaller infrastructure companies. I had a conversation a while ago with Brendan Burns that's stuck with me where he talked about the standardization on Kubernetes and that you know, since you have a standardized layer, you might see a rise in, in new types of business models where, for example, people could sell binaries that run on Kubernetes and those binaries could be deployed to any cloud provider, which I thought was an interesting idea. But, you know, you don't even have to go to that kind of a extreme of a of an idea of like a proprietary binary to see the the big impact that Kubernetes is going to have. You could just talk in terms of, you know, Kubernetes being being a standard deployment model for different companies that want to be multi-cloud, for example. Uh, but tell me what ideas you have around how Kubernetes is just going to change the business of software engineering companies. Yeah, that's such an interesting and intriguing question as well. You know, Kubernetes just like kind of really levels the playing field because you have this layer of abstraction that can run anywhere and you can have hybrid environments. And then there's also things like, you know, IoT and edge computing and all of that. So there's just so much room to play in. I I can't even, I don't know exactly how things will, will go, but I do know that there is a lot, a lot of opportunity. I mean, like I've been in kind of the workflow space in particular, so I can speak to that. Like the opportunity for PaaS style workflows, the opportunity for smaller infrastructure companies to kind of create like easy experiences, not only just for like web developers, but we haven't really touched like, like the machine learning The we, I mean, we have like touched the machine learning space, but there's so much room to grow, you know, there it's going to be way easier for people to do like research style things on uh, research style workflows uh, on Kubernetes using Kubernetes. It'll be easier to to develop different types of applications and deploy different types of applications. So I think it's not just like how you deploy the application, but I think the market is going to be more open in terms of like what kinds of applications you deploy on Kubernetes. And so there's so much space to like build different types of work- workflows and then monetize on that. I definitely see that as an opportunity. Uh, the binary thing that uh, Brennan was talking about, that also sounds really interesting. I've particularly seen people in the monitoring and logging space really be able to kind of like have a, a value add there and then and in turn monetize. Like people like Datadog and Sysdig have just like been on the ball since like since containers were super, super in fashion. So there's a lot of room here. And then the service mesh angle and the serverless angle. I mean, there's just like, there's a lot of opportunity, I think. Yeah, yeah, definitely. It's going to be interesting to see which of these ideas are the are the big hits. Because I think even the ones that are, you know, 
a little niche right now will find their way and they'll have some some kind of business model but certainly there will be some some big hits and the edge computing side of things is is that one's curious cuz i don't and do you have a sense for like how eagerly quote edge computing is being adopted by the you know the giant companies that can deploy really big budgets to it are they still like in kind of the evaluation phase there I would say we're still early on, um, but it's something that is that I keep hearing more and more about. And yeah. so I think the enthusiasm is definitely building. I know for Microsoft, that's something that we keep talking about, or Sethia Nadella keeps talking about in his uh, keynotes and stuff. So I'm really looking forward to how that paradigm shift like kind of evolves. It's inevitable. I mean, the idea of having like machine learning models deployed to security systems on an oil refinery or, you know, a security drone that's, you know, monitoring the oil refinery or the shipyard or, you know, any of these other edge areas. But the the time horizon is really ambiguous. Yeah. And, you know, I saw like edge being talked about in a commercial. I think it was like an AT&T commercial or something. But they were just, they had this really good commercial and they kept throwing the term edge out. And I was like, wow, they're just really on the ball. So, I mean, if it's showing up in random commercials, yeah, like you said, it's inevitable. I guess we're at the end of our time. We obviously kind of jumped over the the phase of being acquired where you were at Deus. You got acquired by Microsoft and you know, now you've been working on Kubernetes tooling and obviously governance at Microsoft. I guess that switch to focusing on containers and Go when you were at Deus, that was pretty fortuitous. Wow, it was. I look back and I'm so grateful for the opportunity because not everybody gets to experience that. And I just really was, I got lucky. I was in the right place in the right time and it it has been super fun. Yeah. Do you have any advice for people who are just getting into the Kubernetes community? Absolutely. Don't be too intimidated. <laughs> I think that things will get easier as time progresses. And, you know, this is a really open and inviting and welcoming community. And if it isn't, you should let me know. But, you know, like we we aim to be really inclusive. So get on the Slack channel, you know, ask questions. It is really complex. Not everybody needs to know every piece of it. And, and you know, just a uh, Try stuff out. Don't be too intimidated is, is my advice. Michelle Neroli, thank you for coming on Software Engineering Daily. It's been great talking. Thank you. Thank you so much for having me. Wow.